The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Start! You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome to Victory Thursday. That's right. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. I have decided. Judge Nolan, presiding, has decided that you're allowed to call Victory Thursday, Victory Friday, all the way up to the next game. You can do whatever you like, especially when you have a team that wins in a dominating fashion on Monday Night Football. You're allowed to do that. And the Buffalo Bills defeated the San Francisco 49ers on Monday Night Football, and we all rejoiced. And as we always do on the Thursday episode of this podcast, we are going to tackle some narratives associated with this game. And I truly don't know where else we could possibly start than talking about Josh Allen. It makes sense that we would. I think Josh Allen, from the moment he was drafted until the moment that a lot of people decided he was the guy and moving forward will always be story number one with this team. A franchise quarterback is always story number one and a potential franchise quarterback is always story number one. I think the time when the quarterback does not lead off the story of a game is mostly when you've already determined that quarterback's not the guy. Not a lot of people in Chicago are talking about Mitchell Trubisky this week as, hey, let's dissect his performance. Not a lot of people in Jacksonville talking about Mike Glennon's performance. They just say, yeah, okay, you know, it's this, and they move on. Because they recognize that the data point is just that. It doesn't mean anything in the future at all. But for Josh Allen, 
his performances mean something in the present, and they also tie into potential hope for the future. And that's why they matter so much. That's why they matter so much to us. Because not only are we talking about specifically how he performed that night, and we're going to talk about that, but it also represents something else. It represents hope for the future. And when you have a quarterback you think might be the guy, then that's what happens with the narrative surrounding each one of his performances. Josh Allen, AFC player, offensively of the week. Again, for the third time this year. A great game. I still contend that the Miami Dolphins game from earlier this year was a better game from Josh Allen. That was the best game I've ever seen him play. But I think this is the second best game I've ever seen Josh Allen play. And specifically, there was a point that is encouraging that I want to talk about. And that was Josh Allen versus zone. We've talked about Josh Allen and the hurdles that he's overcome on this podcast. And we specifically talked about an interesting thing that we're going to have an opportunity to see with Josh Allen against the 49ers. You and I talked about it, Mr. and Mrs. Listener, prior to the game. We said Josh Allen's going to see a lot of zone. He's going to see a lot of the softer zone that gave him a little bit of trouble in the middle of this season. He's going to see quarters. He's going to see cover three. He's going to see softer zone. Is he going to be able to perform well against it? Because that was a narrative a while back. It's interesting how fast narratives change in the NFL week to week. So sometimes we need to be reminded of what the narrative was when sometimes we lose sight of it. And the narrative was coming into this year that you beat Josh Allen by playing man and bringing pressure. And for the first four weeks, that did not work out so great for the teams that played against the Buffalo Bills. And so they rotated, and there was a new book on Josh Allen. And now, he's seen a very good zone defense, albeit a little shorthanded by the San Francisco 49ers, but a good zone scheme from the 49ers. And he lit him up like a Christmas tree. Specifically, Josh Allen, per ESPN Stats and Info, Josh Allen was 23 of 25 for 284 yards and two touchdowns versus zone coverage. So if you know that Josh Allen can beat you up if you go to zone coverage and you know you have the route runners like Stephon Diggs and Cole Beasley and John Brown who can get open against man coverage, this creates a problem for opposing defenses. I don't think this was the best game of Josh Allen's career. I've said before, I think it's the second best. I think the game against Miami was the best. And it may not have been the best game of his career, but I bet you it was the most encouraging. I think this was the most encouraging game of Josh Allen's career. For me personally, I can't speak for you, but for me, it was the most encouraging game of Josh Allen's career because best and most encouraging are not the same thing. Most encouraging speaks to hope. It speaks to the future. It speaks to projections and extrapolations. Best is just one data point. Just how did he perform in that game? And the Miami game was bonkers. 
all sorts of types of throws, ridiculous throws against man coverage, tight coverage. There were some unbelievable throws in the San Francisco game too. I give the Miami game an edge, but the San Francisco game was very, very good. And I think it was the most encouraging because of that. It was the most encouraging because it was the next hurdle for Josh Allen. Now, opposing defensive coordinators look at this and go, okay, what's the new book? And guess what? If we see a defense roll out a new book against Josh Allen, then the goalposts get moved. That's what happens. The definition of success, the definition of franchise quarterback, I've said before, you cannot be a franchise quarterback if there is one book on you. If there is one thing that a defense can do and shut you down and all defenses just try and do that thing, you're not a franchise quarterback. If you have an off switch, you're not a franchise quarterback. You might have things you're better at than others, but if you can be shut down as a franchise quarterback with just specific things that they can do to you, then you're not really a franchise quarterback. There are plenty of examples. The NFL is littered with players who got figured out by the league. There are a subsection of Ravens fans who are concerned that Lamar Jackson is one of them. There are a subsection of Baltimore fans that go, oh no, have we been figured out? Is this the same Greg Roman cycle that we saw in San Francisco and in Buffalo, where he's good at designing an offense, but isn't great at adjusting an offense? Is this what's happening to us right now? There are concerns about players who can be figured out. And the more things you can show success against, the lower probability you have of being figured out. And if you get figured out, you're not a franchise quarterback. And Josh Allen having success against that defense means something to me. As I watch him and I watch him check off boxes, it means something to me. It's encouraging to me. Now, perhaps you had already determined a long time ago that he was the guy and this this is just reinforcing your determination. Maybe that's the case. And if so, that's fine. I'm not here to tell you what to think. That's not what we do on this podcast. What we do do on this podcast is I explain what I think and why I think it and we slow down and talk about it because I owe you that. I have a responsibility to you to slow down and tell you why I think what I think and walk you through what logical processes led me to that. Otherwise, I'm just a hot take artist. I'm just saying stuff so you'll react to it. And that's not what we do. So encouraging is the word. Maybe not even best, but still most encouraging. The most encouraging game of Josh Allen's career because he saw something that was the narrative on him before. And not only did he have success against it, he had elite level success against it. He had elite level success against something that previously was a question as to whether or not he could have some success against. When they play that really soft zone, is he going to be patient? Is he going to be able to take the profits? Never go broke taking a profit. Take the profit. Don't turn it into Charlie Checkdown, like he said. But take the profit. The thing specifically 
I want to point out about Josh Allen is that the transition of first phase to second phase of the play was a clean and smooth transition. So first phase of the play, you are in the pocket, you are making the reads. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, or whatever. However, whatever the chronology looks like for your particular read. We've talked about it before. Chronology of reads matters. Based on the coverage, your eyes are supposed to be in a specific spot, and there's a rhythm to it. If you go too fast, the routes aren't developing. If you go too slow, the clock in your head might be broken. There's a rhythm to this. And then when you get through, there might be pressure. For Josh Allen, he'll roll out to his right. He'll break contain. And then you enter the second phase of the play, the scramble drill. And we saw him make multiple plays in the first phase. And when the first phase ended, either by design because he was through his reads or through pressure and it forced him to jumpstart the scramble drill, he was able to cleanly transition into the next phase of the play and make throws downfield. He looked like he was in control. He knew what was going on, wasn't frantic, knew where his answers were. When he jump-started the scramble drill, he looked in control. I would like to see him occasionally roll to his left and be able to make a throw there too, because I do think that rolling to your right constantly over and over and over again is going to show up on tape. People will know that. They will specifically design pressures to not allow you to roll to your right, force you to roll to your left. And if you remember correctly, some of the worst throws we have ever seen Josh Allen make are when he rolls to his left. So I don't think that's necessarily the next hurdle because hurdle's probably too strong of a word for that. But it's the next thing to think about. It's the next thing to notice when you're watching Josh Allen is, okay, can he roll to his left and make throws now? And think about how... Think about how minuscule that is, ladies and gentlemen, relative to what we started with. Relative to, let's just get the play called, okay? Let's get the play called. Let's get up to the line. Let's learn protections. Make sure that's right. Let's make accurate throws. Let's make sure we can read a defense correctly and know what we're seeing. Now we're down to, well, let's make sure we can roll to our left and make throws. That is how nitpicky we can afford to get with this quarterback because of how well he has developed. That's pretty awesome. I think it's great. If that's the thing we're concerned about moving forward is, Hey, just keep doing what you're doing and everything. But the next thing I kind of want to see is, you know, when you roll to your left, can you make accurate passes then? That's pretty good because there are some franchises out there that are worried about our guy. Just make an accurate throw. Just, I don't know, show some pocket presence. Get the play called correctly. Correctly identify the protections and the rushers that are coming. Much more significant parts of playing quarterback than Josh Allen is currently on. That's how far the development has happened. Think about the hurdles for Josh Allen so far. Specifically, think about the hurdle that he was coming into 2020 having to deal with. The narratives that were coming into 2020 are so far in the rearview mirror, we barely remember them. Do you remember when Josh Allen's deep ball was an issue? Do you remember when we weren't sure if he could throw the ball down the field and he was going to have to work on it? And that's something that's 
you know, can be worked on, but isn't super common to improve that much. Josh Allen on throws that are 20 plus yards down the field. In 2018 and 2019, he had 146 attempts, 30.8 adjusted completion percentage, 11 touchdowns, 12 interceptions, a 52.6 rating. This year, on throws, 20 plus yards down the field, 57 attempts, 50.9 adjusting completion percentage, seven touchdowns, four interceptions, 105.4 rating. Josh Allen, from a passer rating standpoint, is twice as good throwing the ball down the field this year relative to what he was in 2018 and 2019. It's a completely new narrative now for Josh Allen. And I am here for it. This is part of the development of a quarterback. And it's been a little bit slower for Josh Allen, but he was a project quarterback. That's what project quarterbacks are. They're slow developing quarterbacks. Most quarterbacks don't take a jump like this in year three. Josh Allen has. I'm here for it. I'm absolutely here for it. And you should be here for it. And you should bask in it. Because having a quarterback offers with it the promise of future success. If the Bills get this right, they have a chance to be good. A good team for the next decade. Maybe longer. That is something that's worth being hopeful about. That is what Josh Allen has given us thus far this year. We're going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. Stick with me. There's more narratives to get to. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive of Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. First segment, all about Josh Allen. Rightfully so. Second segment, there are two other players that were a hot topic for the Buffalo Bills coming out of their game against the San Francisco 49ers. The first is Ike Butker. The second is Levi Wallace. I watched all their snaps. Three people were on the docket for Tape Tuesday for me this week. Josh Allen, Ike Butker, Levi Wallace. So let's talk about Butker. 
Bucker played really well. Really, really well. These are the things you saw from Ike Butker. I saw him hold up and anchor solo in pass protection. I saw good combo blocks with Mitch Morse. I saw him finding work when he was uncovered. I saw him re-anchor when he was knocked off balance. I saw a duo combo up to linebacker. I saw a full spectrum of good offensive line play from Ike Butker. Brian Winters should not play another snap for this team, barring injury. Butker was clearly the superior player. I'll level with you. Ike Butker had a better game against the 49ers than I've ever seen from Cody Ford either. Now, very important. Sample size is still small. It's small for Butker and it's small for Cody Ford. Cody Ford just now got to the position I've been banging the table about him playing since he was drafted, since before he was drafted. Before he was drafted, I said, Cody Ford's a guard. And then they drafted him. They said, we're going to make him a tackle. I said, okay, I think it's a mistake. I think he's a guard. And then he didn't really play that well at tackle. They moved him to guard and he only played there for a little bit before he got hurt. So the sample size is too small to make significant judgments on either Ike Butker or Cody Ford. But I'm just talking about this game. This game, Ike Butker played really well. Levi Wallace did not play really well. Now, a tweet that was going around was noting that Levi Wallace received a pass coverage grade of 28.1 from Pro Football Focus. That is the lowest grade of any cornerback in week 13. Now, it's very important that we take an opportunity now and talk about Pro Football Focus coverage grades. You've heard me talk a little bit about Pro Football Focus grades back when I did my quarterback metric stew pod. By the way, absolutely great idea that came from Josh Rodden from Buffalo Rumblings when it came to my quarterback metric that ended up being a kind of a spider graph, an average, a holistic composite average. And we decided to call it stew. That's what we decided to call it because S T E W kind of turns out to be an acronym for stew. We're going to call it the quarterback statistical talent evaluation worksheet, otherwise known as QB stew. I thought that was awesome. Quarterback statistical talent evaluation worksheet stew. So from here on in, we're going to refer to that as the QB stew. So moving along to pro football focus grades. It's important that you note that I don't think grades from pro football focus are canon. I don't think they're gospel. I don't think you can use them in a vacuum to evaluate basically anything. It is, however, very important that you understand what they're measuring. They're just a tool. And if you attempt to use the tool for something other than its valuable purpose, you're going to be disappointed. Do you hate forks? No, of course you don't hate a fork. What if you try to eat soup with it? Then are you going to hate it? Yeah, of course you're going to hate it because you're not using it for its intended purpose and you're not using it for the purpose that which it is designed and you're not using it for a purpose that is something that it's good at. You're using it to try to eat soup. Pro football focus grades are very similar to that for me. Pro football focus coverage grades emphasize catch point and receptions allowed. 
that is very, very significantly part of them. Allowed catches in that person's coverage and ability at the catch point. Penalties hurt really bad. For example, if you and I are studying Levi Wallace film, we know that that pass interference penalty that was called on him on the first third down of the 49ers game, we know it was a load of garbage. We're probably not going to penalize Levi Wallace for that if we're evaluating the film. That counts as 46 yards given up for the purposes of a pro football focus coverage grade. If you and I are evaluating it, we're like, listen, I don't know what else you wanted him to do. Sometimes penalties are just random. I don't think it was a bad play by Levi Wallace. We're not going to hurt him for that. The coverage grade will hurt him for that. In addition, if Levi Wallace is playing cover three and he's 12 yards off the line of scrimmage, okay, and the ball gets snapped and he starts into his back paddle because it's covered three, and the receiver in front of him runs a five-yard speed out and gets a catch on third and nine for five yards. That counts as a catch allowed in Levi Wallace's coverage and five yards. But you and I would look at that film and go, um, did he do anything wrong there? No, he was supposed to cover a deep third. You could make an argument that that catch shouldn't even be applied to Levi Wallace. It should be applied to whatever linebacker was supposed to get out there in the hook flat zone. But this is the way these things work. So that doesn't mean that they're completely useless. That just means you know what they do. My number one encouragement to you after listening to this pod, listening to my quarterback stew pod not too long ago, is don't hate the tool. Just understand what it's used for and what it shouldn't be used for. I don't hate grades. I just don't think they're canon. I don't think they're gospel. I don't think you can use them in a vacuum to isolate and just say, he played bad and the only thing I'm going to use is this grade. I just, it's too flawed. That doesn't mean it's not useful. That just means you can't use it alone. In this case, I watched Levi Wallace and here are what some of my takeaways were. Second and six, 417 left in the first. It's cover one man. Wallace is over top of Brandon Ayuk. It's a basic out route. Levi Wallace holds at the top of the route, which is bad, gets turned around, gives up a ton of separation. It's good that the quarterback wasn't looking that direction. It's also good a referee wasn't looking that direction. He wasn't targeted. So it's not going to show up in receptions allowed or targets or things like that. It still wasn't a good play. And that's the thing we talked about. We talked about Taron Johnson earlier this year. Don't just look at the plays where they were targeted. Because whether or not they were targeted is based on the quarterback. But that doesn't mean they did their job well or didn't do their job well. Some of the best plays a cornerback can make are forcing the target to go elsewhere. Because the coverage is good. So because they didn't get targeted, was that not a good play anymore? I use this with Tredavious White all the time. When Tredavious White has great coverage and he doesn't get targeted, that's a good play. It's not going to have a statistical impact. And this is the same thing in the inverse. It still wasn't a good play by Levi Wallace. He just didn't get targeted. On the touchdown pass that was given up on the goal line, he had outside leverage 
which is fine because Edmonds is in zone in the middle. But Levi Wallace shoots both his hands and misjudged his length while he was in the middle of a reactionary shuffle. He doesn't disrupt the route at all. He gets his face crossed and gets a touchdown. That was bad press technique by Levi Wallace and a good play by our receiver. Second and 10, 1456 in the third. He bites downhill really bad on a play action. And Ross Dwelly, of all people, tight end for the San Francisco 49ers, gets behind him on a corner route. Recovery speed matters. You can get away with being aggressive like that if you have recovery speed. If you don't, then you end up being behind. First and 10, 13, 19 and third. Brandon Ayuk ran a blaze out, which is a post that gets flattened out toward the sideline. It's cover one man again. Wallace got turned around real badly and he misread the verticality of the route. He turned his back on it and assumed it was breaking vertically and there ended up being a ton of separation for Brandon Ayuk to catch the ball. Third and two, 154 left in the third. Again, stop me if you heard this before, man cover one. He loses inside leverage, reaches and misses, and allows short area separation from Debo Samuel on the slant. Next play, first and 10. 107 left, cover three. Wallace bites on the in cut of a double move and gets burned. You're in cover three. Let the middle safety deal with that. If there is a cut toward the inside, they're cutting toward one of your teammates. One of the cardinal rules of playing boundary corner in cover three is let the safety do what the safety does. Let the safety do what the safety does. That's what they're there for. Don't bite on an in-cutting double move. You're in cover three. If the middle safety wants to cut that route, the middle safety can cut that route. First and 10, 901 in the fourth. Cover three again. Quick out under him, gain of nine. This is a great example of a cash against his coverage for the purposes of metrics, but there's literally nothing he could have done based on the positioning of the snap. He closed and made the tackle. This is what we were talking about before. This is something you should not knock Levi Wallace for. This is me defending Levi Wallace on this play. Yeah, okay, it was a gain of nine, but watch the film. What else did you expect Levi Wallace to do on that? Based on his positioning at the snap, nothing he could have done. All you can do is come up and make the tackle. Also, there's 901 left in the fourth. They're giving them nine yard junks at that point. When you're bad at the catch point, it invites targets. Leslie Frazier came out, openly said, Levi Wallace didn't play well enough. He did not do enough to make them pay for targeting him. In case you thought I was somehow the only one who thought Levi Wallace didn't play well, his defensive coordinator didn't think he played well and openly said he didn't play well. And the issue that you have when you invite targets is that you're already inviting targets by nature of being CB2 on the Buffalo Bills team that has Tredavious White on the other side. That position by virtue of just being across from Tredavious White, is going to invite targets. Why do you think I've been pounding the table for an upgraded CB2? Because I know 
that when Tredavious White's on one side, being CB2 is going to invite targets. And on games where Levi Wallace has been heavily targeted, it has not gone well. There have been two games this year where Levi Wallace has been targeted double-digit times. Week 2 and Week 13. Week 2, the results were 9 catches for 69.2% completion percentage for 107 yards and a touchdown. A rating against his coverage of 119. This week... 12 targets, 9 catches, 75% completion percentage for 146 yards and 143.1 rating against his coverage. Anytime you target Levi Wallace a lot, bad things happen because he's not good enough at the catch point to be able to penalize you when heavily targeted. If he makes a play or two, just keep going after him. Keep targeting him. Because there are no games when Levi Wallace is heavily targeted and it goes well for Levi Wallace. He's in position. He's a smart player. But he lacks the physical tools necessary to be able to consistently compete at the catch point because he's not overly quick and he's not overly physical. So his weaknesses are long speed. He ran a 4.63 at his athletic prime. And physicality weighs 179 pounds and is not shown to be overly aggressive at the cash point. In case you think I'm crazy, there were two games last year in 2019 where he got double-digit targets against his coverage. One of them, they completed eight of them for an 80% completion ratio with a touchdown and 127.5 passer rating against. The other one, he did really well. So one out of four so far, he's done pretty well there. And that was week four against New England. He was targeted 10 times. He only gave up four of them for 51 yards and a passer rating against his coverage of 56.7. But there were a lot of eights and nines in there too. (laughs) Week seven last year, nine targets, gave up seven for 108 yards, 153.7 passer rating against his coverage. So the more you target Levi Wallace, historically, from a trend standpoint, the worse it goes for him. And if one of those games happens in the playoffs, that could be problematic. It's okay for us to say, hey, he didn't play very well. And that's true. He has games where he's prone to not playing very well. Now, the next reasonable question is, can he be upgraded from using a player that's currently on the roster? Because this is the same discussion. This is really important. Follow me here. It's the same discussion we had about Tremaine Edmonds and AJ Klein and every other player who ends up not playing well. The first question is, can we actually confirm they're not playing well? And the second question is, okay, they're not playing well. What are we going to do about it? Can it actually get better? And the answer to that question with Levi Wallace, in my opinion, is maybe. Maybe. Dane Jackson has shown some aggressiveness in run defense. Mind you, Levi Wallace is a pretty good tackler. So that might be a wash. We don't know. But he's shown good aggression in tackling. And he's been targeted 10 times this year. Has given up one touchdown 
but also has an interception and two pass breakups. So if you put that in perspective, Dane Jackson's had two pass breakups in 10 targets. Levi Wallace has also had two pass breakups on 44 targets. Again, sample size is small with Dane Jackson, but there's a chance Dane Jackson's better at the catch point than Levi Wallace. In addition, he's a slightly better athlete. Very, very important. They are both below average athletes for the position. Levi Wallace had an RAS score in the twos. Dane Jackson had an RAS score in the fours. Neither one of them has even average athleticism for the position. Dane Jackson might be a smidge better athlete. And he might be better at the catch point based on small sample size. But if Levi Wallace has two main flaws, long speed, catch point, you're not going to fix long speed by putting in Dane Jackson. Maybe a smidge better, but you're still going to have that flaw. You're still going to have an issue where you have to accommodate with safety help for a lot of plays because Dane Jackson isn't markedly faster than Levi Wallace. But if you have the ability to fix one of those two issues, you should look at it. Now, you might be creating more issues. What if Dane Jackson isn't as good from the neck up and he isn't always in the right spot because he's a rookie? Then you're trading catch point stuff for making sure you're in the right position. So you might be getting a increase in a specific trait, but you might be sacrificing something else. This is where that it can't get any worse than Levi Wallace. No, it can. Well, it can't get any worse than AJ Klein. No, it can. Well, it can't get, no, it always can. The answer is always yes. It can always get worse. There is a worse player out there, I assure you. So it's worth talking about. It's not a slam dunk. I would like to see Jackson get some more snaps. Not necessarily just take all of Levi Wallace snaps and give them to Dane Jackson. But if you know that there's certain things you can trust Dane Jackson to do, and you don't have to worry about potentially a drop-off from a mental aspect, then I'd like to see him get some more snaps because in small sample sizes, he has shown a propensity at a specific weakness that Levi Wallace has, specifically at the catch point. I think there's an argument to be made that Dane Jackson should get a few more snaps. I'm not going to go overboard here. I'm not saying Dane Jackson's the answer. It's way too small of a sample size and probably not seventh round corners with that athletic profile. Pretty small probability of being the guy. But is there a chance he might be a little bit better than a guy who was an undrafted rookie a couple years ago? Sure. That's a possibility. That's for sure a possibility. So it's worth talking about. And that's the entire point. It's worth talking about. There is a logical path through to the idea that the cornerback two spot could get better play if Dane Jackson got a little more snaps and a little more reps in that particular spot. Again, let's not go overboard. Dane's the answer. Levi's terrible. Neither one of those things are true. Levi Wallace is a terrible player. He's a limited player. And when it is targeted a lot, that position with Levi Wallace manning it, 
that starts to show up. Basically, anytime the Bills were single high, whether it was cover one man or cover three, Levi Wallace was a probable target on that play. And other teams are going to notice that. And if you're a corner who struggles against size receivers and you struggle against speed receivers, you're going to run into a lot of them in the playoffs because that's where the good teams are with the good receivers. It's something to consider. And that's all it is, a consideration. It is an argument to be made for your consideration. But we have some pie to dish out, ladies and gentlemen. We have specifically some pie that's of the plurality flavor. And we're going to do it. For those uninitiated, the plurality pie is after a win or loss, I will assign specific percentages to specific players or coaches that I think had a marked impact on the outcome of the game. Josh Allen, 40%. Do we really need to talk anything else about Josh Allen? The entire first segment of this pod was about Josh Allen. And it should be. Most encouraging game of his career. 18%. Brian Dable. Brian Dable is very likely going to be a head coach somewhere next year. And he will have earned it. He will have earned it. And I hope that because of Josh Allen, the Bills will have the pick of the litter at offensive coordinator. Come, work with Josh Allen for two years. Keep it up. And you can get a head coaching job too. And just keep churning and burning. I'm sure Ken Dorsey will probably get an interview. Keep an eye out Chad O'Shea. Browns wide receivers coach. Keep an eye on him for an offensive coordinator. He was the offensive coordinator for the Dolphins last year. I would keep a keep a pin in that as a potential idea for an interview for Bill's offensive coordinator. Cole Beasley, 17%. Career day, career year, career year in 2019. I need a Cole Beasley jersey. I really do. I don't have a jersey. My last jersey was... 11 years ago is when I got my last jersey. I'm not really much of a jersey kind of guy. But Cole Beasley, he's my kind of dude. Ike Butker, 5%. Yeah, that good. He showed up on the plurality pie. That's how good he was. I think that if you get this type of play from him every week, he goes into 2021 as a starting guard for this team. I understand I'm getting the card ahead of the horse. And that's why I preface it saying, if you get this type of play from him, that's how good the play was. It was starting caliber guard play from Ike Butker. Good guard play from Ike Butker. I don't know if that's going to continue. My sample size is small. But if you continue to get it, I think he's your starting guard coming off the bus in 2021. Tredavious White, 9%. Tredavious White just keeps making plays in the second half when the Bills absolutely need him to. Worth every penny. Every single penny. My other jersey, aside from Cole Beasley, Tredavious White. My two favorite players on the team, and I don't think it's particularly close. Other 11%. So to recap, Josh Allen, 40%. Brian Dable, 18%. Cole Beasley, 17%. Ike Bucker, 5%. Tredavious White, 9%. Other 11%. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the plurality pie. And this has been the Bruce Exclusive. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo. Road.